Amen. Good morning, Lake Avenue Church. It's good to be together this morning. I actually feel really uh, joy-filled to have this weekend together, and I've been in prayer, a lot of prayer this week, as I've been in the text and, and studying and thinking about our time together, and, and my prayer has been this, is that, that Jesus would mess with you a little bit as he's messed with me this week, and that you'll find the joy in that. Last week, we began a new series, and this series is going to take us uh, through Easter, And if you were with us, if you weren't with us, I encourage you to listen to the sermon from last week. Brandon Waybright, Pastor Greg's son, uh, preached out of Mark, and specifically a text in which Jesus heals uh, a man who was blind. And Brandon encouraged us to see the sequence of this text through seeing first, then understanding, and then responding. Um, He also mentioned that we're all blind and we need to see Jesus anew. And that same sequence of seeing, understanding, and responding, I think, is going to really hold for us throughout this series. Um, We'll be continuing on in the story right after where we were last week in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes into his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is the word of God. You may be seated. There's a defining moment in my childhood in August of 1990. My dad picked me up and we went to a place we would go from time to time just to to be together, to share a meal. And I know we no longer have one in Pasadena, but I sure miss Fuddruckers. I remember he picked me up and we're at Fuddruckers and I think we went there because we could watch sports on the television. That was very uncommon at that time to have a TV in a restaurant and, 
And as we were eating our burgers, the TV changed to some kind of emergency breaking news. And it was at that moment I found out that we, as a country, were in war. And I remember asking my dad about what that meant. And all of a sudden, the history lessons and even playing with toy guns, there was something that sunk down deep in me that something just changed. I remember you have moments like this where the world all of a sudden became more complex, where the world became a little more tricky. And in some ways, I reflect on that day and that moment as, the, as, a, as a moment where I stopped being a child. Here I was going along in life, and in a moment, in a moment, I was forced to realize a new category. I was forced into a new reality. There was a new truth that altered everything in me. An afternoon that began about some time with my dad and having a hamburger, it changed everything. In the text we just read in the Gospel of Mark, there's a very normal moment for Jesus and the disciples traveling, moving from city to city, and in this very normal moment, Jesus initiates a conversation that will be a game changer for the disciples. The conversation that we've just heard and that we have recorded, not just in this gospel, but some other gospels, is a defining moment in the ministry of Jesus, and it's a defining moment for his disciples, because here they are, what started as a day, just traveling to the next moment, Jesus initiates a conversation that will change them forever. This text is the first time, the first time in the gospel of Mark where Jesus gives some teaching some clarity on what it means for him to be the Messiah. Up to this point, there is no talk of death and resurrection. There is no talk about suffering. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Jesus, and Jesus has been a part of some amazing, amazing things. But this is the first moment where he starts talking about himself, the Son of Man, the Messiah, and what all this is going to mean. And it was a game changer for them, and it's a game changer for you and me, right? Up till now, I mean, even if you just pull out the, the, your Bible and look at the Gospel of Mark, you will see that Jesus is on a roll. Jesus has done some, some healing. He has driven out evil spirits. He's healed a man with leprosy. He's healed someone who was paralyzed. He even had a meal with some people that everybody thought, hey, Jewish religious leaders, we don't eat with those people. He breaks that and causes quite a, a chatter around him. He heals more people. He's calmed a storm. He restores a, a man who is possessed by demons. He's raised a girl from the dead back to life. He's walked on water. He's fed thousands from just a couple pieces of bread and fish. And last week, we saw that he healed even a man who was born blind. I mean, the word is out about Jesus. The crowds have heard about this man where, where these kinds of things happen. And if he was alive in our time doing these things, we might say Jesus has gone viral. And while he's walking around with his disciples... He pauses and has a moment of reflection because I imagine these crowds have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and he points a question to them. He said, all these people are coming at me. We just fed thousands of them just a few, few moments ago. What's the chatter about me? Who do the crowds say that I am? And 
And the responses come back. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Still some think you're a prophet of long ago. And then Jesus in this defining moment, about ready to just rock their world, says, okay, that's the crowds. And then he turns the question to his disciples, the ones who've been with him longer. And he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up. And he said, you are the Messiah. But then what follows is dramatic. Because if this was a test, if it was a multiple choice test, and, we had to, and, and Peter had to match Jesus, the Messiah, in two lanes, he got the answer right. But if it was an essay, he would have failed the question. Because although technically he got the right answer, yes, you're the Messiah, what we find out is that Jesus starts explaining to them shortly after this what it means for him to be the Messiah, and Peter wasn't having it. When he said Messiah, he meant something very specific. And when Jesus starts talking about himself as Messiah, there's a conflict, such a conflict that Peter pulls Jesus aside and starts rebuking him, letting him know he's got the wrong idea. Peter had a better idea of what Messiah was than Jesus in that moment. And then what follows is, again, it's worthy of much more time. It's not the point of this text. But then Jesus ends up turning and rebuking Peter. And in this confusion around Messiah, Jesus sees Satan in it as a tempter, as trying to say, no, no, go back to the other definition. <laughs> go, to, go to a different definition of Messiah, not the one you just put forward. It's thick. It's dramatic. It is a scene. And I hope you can pick up on the drama. I hope you can see the tension. Because this is a defining moment for Peter. It's a defining moment for the disciples. Everything they've known about Jesus, everything they've expected around the idea of the Messiah, all of it is getting turned upside down on its head. And we're going to see these two defining moments. I'm going to tell you where we're going in this. We're going to hear the defining moment about the Messiah. We're going to go into detail of what Jesus says. And then there's another defining moment of what it means for his followers. So if this is true of Jesus as the Messiah, what's true of those who want to follow the Messiah? But before we get to those moments, the teaching of Jesus, I want us to sit for a moment in these two answers. The answer of the crowd, this John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, there's something happening in that answer I want us to think about. And there's also, as we've already mentioned, there's something so loaded in, in Peter's answer of the Messiah. So for, for a moment, the crowds. Who do the crowds say I am? John the Baptist, Elijah. I mean, essentially what I want you to see here, and there's a few ways to see this. It's just a new insight for me is that it's not just, the, it's not just our day and age where we're just infatuated by celebrity that even in this moment, there's an infatuation with celebrity. I mean, Jesus is on the move, and this is part of God's mission to get the word out about Jesus. And I'm not saying that's a, a bad thing, but their answer did not see Jesus for who he was yet. Their answer saw Jesus as kind of the, the ancient world celebrity that we gotta get near, we gotta get around. I mean, these are very intentional names, John the Baptist, Elijah, prophets. It's the people are... They know something special about this guy, and they want to be near him. These are powerful and good 
Jewish names. These are good names to cite to be near. Elijah has some very specific context that's going to show up actually very soon after, and we'll get to it later today. But the crowds were coming out, and they were associating Jesus with the biggies of the past and present on the religious scene. Now, what's amazing to think about is that these same kind of people who were infatuated with the celebrity of Jesus in the positive are soon going to show up in the same kind of energy to put him on a cross, to cheer him on all the way to the cross. So don't mistake celebrity status with devotion. So I also want to explore Peter's answer of the Messiah. I mean, we have to deal with that there were messianic expectations. I was talking to Henry, my oldest, about this on Friday, driving him to baseball practice, and yes, I do make them sit through parts of these things before I talk to you. Pray for my children, please do. And I was talking about expectations, and I said, Bud, because Christmas is like this, this thing in him at 10 years old, right? I mean, every day leading up to Christmas is a new thing for the list, or I want to resend, or what about this? And I heard about this at school, and it just changes. And I, you're watching this little body, this little mind, get so many different expectations of what Christmas morning is going to be. And there are and have been moments where he's sorely disappointed when he wakes up. Because for 30 days waiting creates significant expectation. Now, can you imagine the expectation of generation after generation after generation after generation after generation waiting for Jesus, the Messiah, to come? The longer we wait, the bigger our expectations are at times. And so when Peter says, you're the Messiah, it is so loaded in messianic expectations, and there were many of them. There were all kinds of stories and ideas and narratives that people believed in. The main one that I think fits most connected to this text is around this military Messiah figure. I mean, they were waiting, and the Messiah was going to come and do some very specific things for them. I mean, listen, this is where Elijah is showing up. There was going to be a time of great chaos, great tribulation, and then Elijah is going to emerge from the past and be a forerunner in the midst of this chaos that was happening among the nations. Then the Messiah would follow and war would begin and the Messiah would win it all, take everybody out and reestablish the Jewish people as the powerful people in this world. They were waiting for the Messiah to take out Rome. They were waiting for the Messiah to show up and build an army and wipe people out literally. So when Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Messiah, he's waiting for Jesus to start getting the weapons and the people ready. And they've been waiting and waiting because there's going to be this new government and the, their enemies are going to die and it's going, this Messiah is going to basically come to preserve them. And Jesus comes with a radically definition saying, he's not a Messiah that's only focused on me from the individual Jewish perspective, but he's a Messiah that's about we. I mean, this is radically different than generation after generation, generation expectation. I mean, note how specific this one theory is. I mean, you're an oppressed people. The Messiah's going to come in to deliver you. And who are your enemies? They're going to be now, like, you're going to be in charge. You're going to be on top. 
what you thought was coming, if you thought that was coming, can, you, can we now understand why Peter is having such a hard moment here? If this is your image of what it meant to be the Messiah, and then Jesus says, oh, yeah, in this Messiah, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and then raised to life. It didn't fit the expectations. This context of kind of the celebrity infatuation, this context of having messianic expectations, let's be honest. It's not just the ancient world that still struggles with these two things. I mean, honestly, we talk about what happened in the world this week with death, and the leading headline in most of my news feeds is about the, the college scandal, and not even that, just the two main celebrities, because we're so drawn to celebrity. Meanwhile, 50 people died. But the lady from Full House, we're drawn. Celebrity, and, and celebrity even within the faith community is something that is so strong. We have to understand, to, to get this defining moment with Jesus, we need that same kind of course correction. Because you and I are also drawn to celebrity. And specifically, the longer you follow Jesus or however you structure your life, and I'm in this with you, we can get so fired up to line ourselves up with whoever the Christian fill in the blank that we connect with most. So the way I come to understand Jesus sometimes has more to do with the way I quote Tim Keller. The way I understand Jesus has more to do with the way I quote John Perkins or line up with Inner Varsity or, or Campus Crusade or this pastor or that pastor or this movement because we also are drawn to connect ourselves to whatever is happening out there and Jesus the whole time sometimes is saying, who do you say I am? And we answer that with bad names sometimes. I don't think there's anything wrong with being any of those people. I think down deep all people at their, at their purest motive, whoever Christian leaders who have jobs like mine are doing their best to bring people to Jesus. So I don't say those things as indications on them. I say those things as indications on us. That we're the ones who elevate Christian, Christian leaders. That we put them so front and center in our lives that we have to get past them sometimes to actually see Jesus. And I hope you know this, that Christian leaders should help lead us to Jesus and not to themselves. Christian leaders should help lead us to Jesus and not to themselves. And I'll be honest, this is a total little bit of a tangent, but I'm really confused. I'm really confused right now how the celebrity culture around Christian leaders, Christian leaders with and pastors with PR strategies and marketing techniques. Those of us who follow Jesus waking up sometimes more eager to see what our favorite pastor's saying about something before we've even looked at the scriptures. Following their tweets, their Instagrams, what happened, what are they saying? It's fascinating to me because we love to elevate people to divine status. Some leaders enjoy being up there I want you to know this from the bottom of my heart, that I really, I don't believe I'm here or do a job for, in preaching so that you'd be drawn to me or my words. I'm here so that you might be drawn to Jesus and to his word. And I pray that that would be true for all who work at this church and who serve the church around the globe. 
So celebrity still matters. We still have a celebrity problem, and our celebrity addiction gets us in, in the way of us seeing Jesus sometimes. But, but we also have to acknowledge that we, like Peter, have our own messianic expectations as well. And if we're, if I'm honest, a lot of my messianic expectations really aren't that different from what they were expecting. I mean, maybe I don't have Jesus with weapons and, and leading a war, but I certainly have Jesus promoting me above everyone. I certainly believe that the Messiah I follow will help get us back on top, whatever that means. That if, if, if Jesus really is the Messiah, then we'll be able to correct all these horrible things happening out there. And, and, and we have this kind of me-centered part of the Messiah that comes with all kinds of expectations. And at times, those expectations line up with the Scripture. But there's also things and times we've got Jesus and a whole bunch of stuff that I'm not sure he's involved in. So we too have a tendency to make the Messiah mean whatever we want for ourselves. So it's not just the ancient Jewish world that needed some course correction. These aren't just good stories from people long ago who didn't get it. And so we can look at them and realize how much we're getting it. No, no, we, we're here. This is our story. We need Jesus to bring some defining moments into our life too. And so there's two. The first one's this, the defining moment about Jesus himself. Remember the expectation of the Messiah. Now see this four-part job description of Messiah that nobody saw coming. Nobody saw coming that the job description of Messiah is suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. I mean, maybe those words worked in a totally different context for them, that the Messiah would be the one to cause some suffering, that the rejection of Rome and the death of everybody who's bad and that what would be resurrected is the Jewish people and the people of God. So do you see how this job description just doesn't work with the expectations? Suffering? The Messiah suffers? Not Rome? I mean, Rome's supposed to suffer. How would a victorious military figure not win, but instead suffer? But suffer he did. Suffer he did when, when they mocked his kingship by putting a crown of thorns on his head and the thorns so thick they pierced into his skull. Because our Messiah suffered. Our Messiah, before he hung on the cross, was with his back exposed, was whipped with what was called a cat of nine tails, a long leather whip with nine different pieces coming out at the end where they would tie pieces of bone or rock or glass. And they would whip that cat of nine tails on the back of Jesus and all those pieces sticking in and pull it back out with pieces of flesh coming out. And in fact, if you, if you endured 40 lashes, kind of the, the idea was you wouldn't make it. You would die in that act. So they spared Jesus and just did it 39 times. Because the Messiah, the job description of Messiah was one of suffering. We know that Jesus suffered when he carried his own cross with his open back and his thorned brow through a parade of mocking and death. This wasn't, this wasn't how it was supposed to be. Rejection. I mean, the Messiah was supposed to become a victorious king, a king in, with popularity, a king with honor, a king whose people revered him, not a king whose people re, would reject him. 
I mean, his very disciples, the night before all this began, he just said, stay awake with me. I got, I got a big day coming up. I need you to be with me. Be my friends. And they, they couldn't even stay awake with him. Rejection. One of his closest disciples being the one who actually turned him over to the government. Rejection. Mocked, spit on, laughed at by the same kinds of people who showed up and said, heal my children. Rejected by his friends, the government and strangers. Rejected by even people that he probably blessed at one point. Third part of this job description is death, and death was always a part of the expectation. But the Messiah was the one who was going to bring the death, not the one to endure the death. Certainly, he wouldn't be killed, and certainly he wouldn't be killed in such a cruel and public and shameful fashion by being nailed to a cross with his broken and beaten body, carrying his cross to Calvary and then being nailed to the cross with nails going through right under his, under his palm of his hands. And the way you died in crucifixion, it wasn't like a, a gunshot. A couple nails, you're dead. It's a slow, painful, horrible death of, 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 of suffocation that your body would get weaker and weaker and you kept pulling up till you had no more energy and, and you wanted the guard to come by and break your legs so you could just get this over with. But the job description of Messiah had to be fulfilled and he had to die. This is the very definition of torture. This is anything but a victorious military figure. But then there's this fourth part that no one saw coming. Resurrection. And in this text, this goes unnoticed if you really read it. It made no sense to them. The victory and power of this Messiah would ultimately be found in his power over death because suffering and rejection and death don't get the final word. Resurrection gets the final word. Jesus pulls off Easter, and the world has never been the same. It's a game changer. It all changes from here in the book of Mark. And for us today, the Messiah has come, not as one would think, but as he did. And in his coming and fulfilling this rescue, we have an opportunity to be rescued. He's rescued the world through his life, death, and resurrection. He didn't come just to restore one group of people. He came to save the world. And Jesus isn't done teaching in this text. He's not just saying, let me, let me give you a defining moment of what it means to be Messiah, but he moves on to say, let me give you a defining moment of what it means for you now. And he gives us our job description. And there's a job description for us in this text. And before we talk about us specifically, can we have a moment of some perspective taking for the Jewish people at that time? I mean, think about if, if your expectation of Messiah was that you were going to ultimately wipe out all your enemies and be back on top, this is anything but good news. You have expectations too about what this means for you. Expectations of abundance is going to come and victory is going to come and we're not going to suffer anymore under the hands of the Romans. We're going to be back on top. And so this job description of Messiah and the need for a follow-up job description for us is because it's a radical shift of expectations of what faithfulness looks like and what following the Messiah looks like. 
I've actually wondered this week if when Peter pulls Jesus to the side, that he's actually maybe more upset about what this means for him than what it actually means for Jesus. Because if you're the Messiah, and we're going to see this later, shortly after this, and Greg's going to get there, James and John, they're starting to argue, okay, okay, we're trying to wrap our brain around this. So when we're in heaven, can we sit at your right and your left? They still want, they still want close. They still want that back on top feeling. And Jesus says this, and he says it really clearly. Here's your job description. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And then he says, lose your life, and then go public. So let's look at this really quick. Deny yourself. Jesus says, you want to follow me as the Messiah? Recognize that this is not about you. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. See your own sin. See that it's not just those people who put Jesus on the cross, but that all of us put Jesus on the cross. And so we take up our cross recognizing our need of Jesus and we follow Jesus and that's not just an intellectual belief. Jesus is calling us to reorient our lives in that truth. To believe in Jesus and to reorient our lives to follow Jesus. And then he says this, lose your life. Lose your expectations, your ideas of what real living is supposed to be. And when you lose your life for me, you'll actually gain life. The things you once lived for, the way you you once saw things, when you lose your life to me, I can change everything for you. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our life. It's about Jesus and his life. And then he says this, devotion to me. Don't be ashamed of me. If you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. I didn't come and hang on a cross and to fulfill this Messiah job description so that you could have a very quiet, intimate relationship with Jesus that nobody ever knows about or nor sees any fruit from. If you really want to reorient your life after Jesus, then start living. Show the world the difference I make. Don't be ashamed of me. Everything changes. Everyone will know when we reorient our lives to Jesus. Now, this job description at first glance, it really does seem like a bit much, especially for those of us today where maybe it's the first time you've heard of this job description. But I gotta tell you, it's not like, it's not like a, a horrible sentence at a court where, oh, I gotta deny myself and take up my cross. For those of us who follow Jesus, we can give witness and testimony that when you live this job description, you actually live what Jesus promises is life and life to the full. He did not come and fulfill Messiah job descriptions so that we can just have a good time when we're in heaven. In fact, chapter 9, it it continues. The same teaching bleeds into 9, and he says this, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come and has power. It's Jesus saying this, This job, I'm calling you to this life. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Lose your life for me. Go public with the faith. And here's what, and you will see the kingdom. You will see how powerful life is. You will understand what real living is about. You don't have to die for all this to make sense that you actually can experience here and now in this life. And this is good news, brothers and sisters. 
Because it's not a gloomy job description. It's not a gloomy message. It's a redefining moment for us. It's a defining moment that says, this is what real living is. And it's a, it's, it's a way of living that we, we give up everything and we, we receive the Messiah into our life. It's not a religion that's convenient or just makes me feel good or that begins once I die. It's an active, incredible, and I guarantee you that there are so many of you who today inside, you're saying, yes, that's what I know of God. So what do we do with this? And I've thought of two questions I'd like you to think about today and this week. And the first question is this. Where might your understanding of Jesus need some course correction? Where might your understanding of Jesus need some course correction? Maybe you need to do what I've done this week and really think about my messianic expectations. How is it I think Jesus shows up at Messiah, as Messiah in my life and in this world? And if I'm honest, maybe again, not with like military force, but my understanding of Jesus, at least the way I reorient my life sometimes, has me winning. Has me getting, the, getting it all, whatever that means, like, like the money, or my kids are going to turn out great, or I'll be able to, whatever it would be. Jesus in my life, so everything, I, I get back on top. That's not what Jesus says. We still have a wipe them out, overtake. If Jesus is in my life, that means we get to be in charge. I think that needs some course correction. I also think for some, the course correction would be this, and if you, are, if you are the kind of person who, if you're honest, you read more pages of everybody else talking about Jesus than you read Jesus talking about himself, then maybe from now till Easter, why don't we quiet down the blogs, the following of the social media of our favorite Christian leaders, as amazing as they are, and just for a season, just spend time in the Word of God. And be drawn to God, not just God's people. The prayer for this would look like this. If you don't know how to answer this question, it's a very simple prayer. I've been praying it. Jesus, show me where I'm off course in my devotion to you. Reveal this to me and lead me back to you. Jesus, show me where I'm off course in my devotion to you. Reveal this in me and lead me back to you. For some, this is your prayer this week. It's your prayer today. That Jesus in his kindness and his pursuit of you would reveal to you where you need a little course correction. And by the way, we all need course correction. But the other question I think for some is who do you say Jesus is? I mean, maybe, maybe that, that's the loudest question I pray for. I, I know for certain there are people in this room right now who you've been around Jesus a long time and you don't know how to answer that question. Or that somebody brought you here or has been dragging you here for week after week and I don't know about all this Christianity stuff. I don't know about Jesus. And I hope you hear in the text today Jesus asking you, who do you say I am? 
And if, if that's you this morning, I just want to say this. Today is a great day to lose your life. Today is a great day to receive the true Messiah and to begin the journey of turning your whole life around and be reoriented after him. It is a good way of living. It is an incredible freedom and joy that comes when you give your life to Jesus. Now, don't, don't, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of us who mess up all the time. That's actually part of the journey. But don't let somebody else's noisy life get in the way of the beauty of Jesus calling you and saying, I did all this, suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection for you. And I pray today that you, that you, that you follow Jesus. See the joy that comes from denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus to find out what real living is and to watch your life in this world change. So if you don't follow Jesus, or you once did, and it's time to redo that, reconnect, recommit, don't leave today without praying something like this, Jesus, thank you for being the true Messiah. I recognize your suffering, the rejection, the death, and I celebrate the resurrection that you did all that for me. Help me reorient everything after you. Join me in prayer. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this opportunity to be together in this space to worship you, to be connected with one another. I pray and be connected to you. God, for the ways in which we need course correction, I pray you would reveal to each one of us. And I pray that that course correction, we would sense your joy in redirecting us. No shame, no guilt, but freedom. And God, I pray very specifically for those in this room who are contemplating or maybe just have said, I want to follow you. I want to reorient my life after you, Jesus. I pray that they would have the courage to follow what you're doing in their lives, in their minds, in their hearts. And God, ultimately, we pray this. We pray that we would be bearers of the gospel, of this story, of redemption, this definition of Messiah that you would empower us not just to speak it, but to live it in the places you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning... This morning, um, these, are, these are always the, let's just be honest, these are the tough transitions. Um, there's gonna be some people to my left. If you do not follow Jesus, or you wanna start following Jesus, or you just did, you are the most important person in this room right now. 
and there's gonna be some pastors, there's gonna be some prayer leaders, and behind that door, there's actually a prayer room which is incredibly private, and we just wanna connect with you and talk to you about that and have you talk to us and pray together. It, won't, it wouldn't be long, but please come and receive this morning if that's you. As always, if you need places to connect at Lake, there's the banner, but even better, we got a lunch. In fact, I'm skedaddling up there very soon. I invite you to stay for lunch. If you are a new member of Lake Avenue Church, you've been told to come and to be ready to stand up. So if you're a new member, would you please stand so we can celebrate your new memberness? Yay. So this means uh, members, or if you've been around Lake a long time, you attack with love and joy after I dismiss you, okay? We're grateful that you've chosen to, to join in this in this this body. This is an amazing place. Um, so I'm going to give you the benediction, and then today I am literally popping out to go up to that lunch so I can do that portion. And so would you please stand for the benediction? As you head into this week, go in peace and live by faith. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now in this life everlasting. And I pray that this would be a week in which you see the Messiah for who he truly is and that you would find joy and freedom in following him. Amen. Have a great week.